0: Welcome to this post-mortem about dopamine and other happy chemicals. Now, I end-capped this project, this podcast, with the personal meaning of it all. What does it mean to me personally to have gone through this project? But I wanted to add a sort of final thesis. What did I ultimately learn from this? And it comes with an article that I want to share Um, But it primarily comes down to understanding my relationship to dopamine, oxytocin, and serotonin. Or you could say, if you want to relate it to the Enneagram instincts, the self-preservation side, the social side, and the one-to-one side, or the sexual side. And I think those three chemicals have a corollary to that. Um, And I invite you to to investigate that for yourself. But uh, ultimately, I feel like understanding the regulation of those three things through my personal experience has been what has ultimately led me to want to move on and start to talk about other things and actually start to live that out and start to develop practices to balance those parts of me. And it's an ongoing process, and I still document some of that in the book that I'm writing, and in some of the work that I'm starting to do at Open Source Thinking, which is let's go substack.com. If you want to go, check that out and follow me on that project as that goes forward. And that project's going to allow me to expand to include media examples and start to talk about other topics that are not just related to my internal experience. Because that's what this podcast has been, has been more about my internal experience. And if you're going through internal growth, say that you're listening to this podcast for the first time or fairly new to this, this entire podcast has been about documenting my internal experience and learning things from the outside world and bringing that to my internal experience. So if you're going through a time where you're trying to understand your deep unconscious or your shadow stuff or ego stuff, this podcast is really great for that. So I want to wrap on this, uh, article from, I, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it, Aon, Ion Enterprises. I know it's like, a, a it, it's something I came across recently that the manner of speaking in philosophy is not only second tier thinking, I believe in spiral dynamics, but it's a very similar voice to mine. And, um, I wanted to, bring that out to you and it starts with a, a bible quote which is very unusual for me but it actually works so um let's let's do this for whoever hath to him shall be given and he shall have more abundance but whoever who whosoever hath not from him from him shall be taken away even that he hath matthew thirteen 12. it's been a minute but we're back in a, with a vengeance the past several months have been a strange and interesting time for the most of us, I'd imagine, and you may have sensed some changes in the way that we're, things are moving. We seem to be on the razor's edge in a way, torn between the sense of impending doom and hellish chaos that the mainstream culture and political sphere are experiencing, and something else entirely. I've been asking a number of people about how their year has gone, and so many have told me that despite the uncertainty and disruption, this year has led them to be in the best position they've ever been. Why is there this disconnect between these worldviews? How did we become so split in our perspectives? What is the critical difference, the thing that makes one person thrive where another flounders? This is something I've spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about recently, and we're going to explore it today. Along the way, we're going to explore the concepts of scarcity and abundance. Take a look at the Matthew effect, revisit my theory of everything, and try and answer the last question. Let's get it. We're going to start with one of the critical dichotomies of our time, competition versus cooperation. These two strategies and the conflict between them are built into the structure of almost all of human society, and they form the basis of two worldviews we're going to be looking at, scarcity versus abundance. A person who operates from a position of scarcity, fundamentally, believes that there is not enough to go around, and thus resources, wealth, ideas, relationships, etc., are tied up in a zero-sum game, where winners take all and losers get nothing. A person who operates from a position of abundance believes that there is more than enough to go around, will share freely, and is able to cooperate with an attitude of trust and openness because of the security this belief provides. Now, there are about 15,000 or so self-help books on developing an abundance mindset. So I'll skip the de- uh, keep the description brief and get into the meat of, the things, of things. The first and most important thing we have to identify here is that one of these strategies is demonstrably better. And... I'm sure you can guess which one. It's proof enough that man is called the social animal that we're hardwired for competition. uh, For cooperation, not competition. Uh, There's a quote semi-plausibly attributed to Margaret Mead that I'll paraphrase here. Uh, The first mark of civilization was fossil evidence of a healed femur because it requires the help of another human to do the healing. And uh, it says, For more on our cooperative history, read Tribe by Sebastian Younger which is uh, highly recommended and a quick read. We are social creatures, period. Our ability to feel the deep pain of loneliness is an evolved trait that kept people from doing things that distanced them from the group. Because if you got exiled from the tribe, you died. The end. We resent people who hoard wealth today because in the hunter-gatherer societies we evolved into, if you hoarded meat after the hunt, you'd get your ass kicked. Or exiled. Then die. Remember? So we're we're evolved for pre-social behavior, or pro-social behavior, I should say, in small groups, about 150 to 250, also known as Dunbar's number. And our modern environment basically doesn't reflect that at all. We live in massive cities surrounded by strangers, where we're taking part in many social hierarchies that may not even be able to see all the levels of. We may not be able to see all the levels of. If you have 150 people, you can probably figure out where you stand. But if you work for a massive corporation, you're probably never going to form an, ident- an entry-level job to. Uh, you're probably never going to from an entry-level job to CEO. Yeah, you're probably never going to go. Sorry, dyslexia. If you're probably never, you're probably never going to go from an entry-level job to CEO. When we can't in- navigate the social hierarchy effectively, we feel isolated. And when we're isolated, we act very differently. There's a study on lab rats where. Uh, who were placed in an isolation cage alone, with the choice between normal water and water laced with cocaine. The lonely rats chose the coke water, as one would expect Uh, being a rat is hard enough already. However, when they were placed in a cage with other rats, they kicked their coke habit. Why? Cocaine is, among other things, a dopamine agonist, and it releases dopamine, the reward chemical. Dopamine is the chemical your brain releases when you do something like learn a skill, win a game, or succeed in a challenge. It's a little bit of an antisocial chemical at times. It plays a big role in drug addiction and other forms of negative behavior like gambling, risk-taking, and and binge eating. Uh, Dopamine basically tells you, good job, keep doing whatever you just did. Which I think is the best description I've personally heard of dopamine. Dopamine basically tells you, good job, keep doing whatever you just did. Even if what you just did was smoke a bunch of meth and or spend $500 on Clash of can, Clans. Or cash of Cans would be a pretty good game, too. Unlike dopamine, there's another critical chemical you can't get when you're alone, oxytocin. Oxytocin is sometimes called the pair-bonding chemical. It's what you get from hugs, spending time with friends, and genuine compliments. The warm fuzzies, if you will. You basically only get oxytocin by socializing. Oxytocin also has the effect of reducing the severity of drug withdrawal, as well as reducing drug-seeking behavior. So when the sad rat made some friends, the oxytocin helped him drop his thirst for the white lightning. I'm going to propose a hypothesis here. It seems that when we're not receiving a sufficient amount of oxytocin from no, from normal, healthy socializing, we default to seeking dopamine, guilty as charged. And the dopamine circuits are the basis of scarcity mindset, A cokehead will do anything to score their fix, including lie, cheat, and steal, because they need to secure the next hit of dopamine to stave off the loneliness of oxytocin deprivation. This becomes more disturbing when you realize the mechanisms of social media all all revolve around the dopamine circuits, but that's not within the scope of this article, so we're going to brush over that a bit. We get dopamine by competing and winning, and we get oxytocin through recognition and appreciation by the group. Uh, Each of these has their purpose, and this is by no means a wholesale demonization of dopamine. We have dopamine circuits for a reason, after all. However, I'm going to make the argument that our modern society is hyper-dependent on dopamine. Absolutely. And that this is because we're destroyed. Uh, Because we've destroyed, because not we're destroyed, we've destroyed, or at least forgotten the value and the importance of our healthy social communities. Yes, I, yes. Um, Here's where things get weird. There's a concept called the Matthew effect, which is thus named thusly after the biblical quote I opened the article with. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. This has been warped a bit by the social sciences, sciences into a more familiar saying, the rich get richer, and the poor get poorer. Not generally something people would imagine, Jesus saying, Right? Humor aside, the Matthew effect seems to be present across many domains. For example, scientists who are already well known get more attention than those who are less well known and do superior work. This probably means you, Neil deGrasse Tyson, but no hard feelings. I'd, I'd hazard a guess that the combination of oxytocin provided by some measure of recognition over time, being recognized in your field, having some social status, or growing up in a supportive environment combined with a few early successes. Dopamine feedback is the preconditions for an abundance mindset. If you only get the dopamine, you'll chase your success, but won't ever feel validated by the group. And if you get the oxytocin, you'll lack the drive to take risks and seek challenges. Get both, though, and you're unstoppable. This brings back the obvious superiority of an abundance mindset as a means of operating in the world. Unless you live in an environment where there's actual scarcity, like one of those Marxist countries your academic friends speak so highly of, Hey, Venezuela. Then you're not really benefiting by acting antisocially to secure your own survival. Given the choice, it is a better, more sustainable strategy over time to act with trust and intent to cooperate, because those who trust are trusted in return, and those who can play nice play more games to paraphrase, to paraphrase Jordan Peterson. Uh, if only it were that easy. Our predisposition towards a competition-based scarcity mindset is actually predicated on a metaphysical assertion about reality, or more simply, that mainstream worldview actually believes that the nature of reality is fundamentally scarce. Uh, scarcity. We're going to get a bit heady here, so buckle up. And you know, this is the stuff I love. I won't go excessively in depth into my theory of everything here, but if you're interested, you can read about it. He's got it on his website at Aion Enterprises. To summarize, uh, my argument is that the universe within the span of the flow of time from the beginning of time, the alpha point, the point of the highest potential energy, to the end time, the omega point, the point of lowest potential energy, is governed by the proportion between alpha and omega. The scientific worldview assumes that, as time flows, energy goes from being usable to being dispersed in a process called entropy, and the second law of thermodynamics predicts the heat death of the universe, where at the end of time the entire universe has reached a uniform cold temperature and all movement stops, like a hot cup of coffee becomes room temperature after you leave it sitting out, except in this case the room temperature is like zero degrees Kelvin, more or less. This is all very abstract, so let's turn it into a metaphor. The mainstream scientific worldview basically assumes a universe in which no matter what one does, at the end nothing matters, all things fall apart. It's metaphysical nihilism, and by assuming this is the extent of the universe, we create a worldview based on the assumption of utter meaninglessness built in. We set ourselves up for failure. My theory argues that while the physical world may fall apart, we gain something from it too. If you break a toaster while taking it apart, you may not be able to fix that particular toaster but you have gained something. Uh, You learned how it works. Ultimately, my argument is that our subjective consciousness, the experience of you inside your head, is real, and that subjective consciousness, as we experience it, isn't some illusion. Many people believe this. Look it up. But actually, a fundamental and and inseparable part of our reality, my argument, is that uh, potential may run out, but we gain information subjective experiences and knowledge of the way the world works. As a result, the mainstream scientific worldview argues the universe ends in zero, but I'd argue that rather than an equation, it's a proportion. My argument is one for metaphysical abundance. The scientific worldview argues that the universe sprang into existence somehow from nothing and will return to nothing, where I argue that the universe is a cyclical evolutionary process of change. I think that life and consciousness are fundamental properties of being that there is no scarcity because the nature of the universe itself is one of abundance. I propose that as the physical universe's potential energy is lost to entropy, we gain something else, syntropy, the counterentropic force. Syntropy comes from the Greek syn, meaning with and to, or together, uh, which is S-Y-N, and trope, meaning transformation. Uh, Yeah, together transformation. Here it means the transformation of things coming together. And I'd argue that centropy is the same force that I spoke of when I wrote about the tendency towards complexity and the will to order. Life is the centropic force. As the universe changes, life changes with it. DNA itself seems to be an information storage system that arises as a response to these universal processes of entropy. It learns and grows based on the laws of the universe itself and it stores a record of the conditions of the universe uh, was under as it develops. Our consciousness represents this information system becoming self-aware and able to reflect on itself, which uh, is a Carl Sagan quote. Anyway, let's zoom back into some more practical, less heady stuff. To summarize that, the mainstream scientific worldview, the modern worldview, the modernist worldview, has built our society on the assumption that scarcity is a normal part of our reality, but I do not think this is the case, I believe the universe is fundamentally good and a place of abundance that we can succeed in if we accept that to live and thrive in the universe requires us to do certain things, like cooperate. How does this tie back into where we're all in at in society? The world is currently on the razor's edge of a choice. Do we live in the world of scarcity or one of abundance? If we live in a world of scarcity, we will continue competing and living in a way where man turns against man, will destroy our natural environment in the hopes of making more money to enjoy some quality of life while the world goes to shit. The rich will win at the expense of the poor, while the, guilt, uh, while the gulf between the two continues to grow. Politicians will continue to sell out their country to, cooperation, to corporations and foreign interests, while the people who elect them suffer in the mires of poverty. Eventually, there will be no one left to compete with, as our destructive strategy reaches its inevitable conclusion, death, and desolation. If we live in a world of abundance, then there's a different story to tell. We're waking up from a centuries-long nightmare to find that the light of dawn shows us a world that isn't so bad after all. People are learning to work together again as we return to our social roots and community finds finds a new birth after the isolation of quarantine. We're finding that we're stronger together than we ever were apart, and that by cooperating, we can accomplish more than we ever imagined." Rather than blaming the world, we're taking responsibility for ourselves and for those around us, and together we've built together a world in the wake of our fading bad dream. I think most people are ready for abundance, but our culture is so steeped in the fear that breeds scarcity that it may be some time before they're ready to trust again. Our task is deceptively simple, to trust in the fundamental goodness of being itself, to believe again in the wholeness of the universe and the ability of the broken to be fixed. When we can move beyond the pain we've clung to and we open ourselves to the infinite possibilities lying before us, ready to be claimed. This, then, is the last question. Which world will you live in? Will you live as if the world is falling apart and in doing so, accept your fate as the dead wood that burns away? Will you learn from the mistakes of the past, and despite the pain, choose to persevere? Will you turn against your fellow man, scrounging for scraps in a sinking ship, Or will you suffer your hand or will will you offer your hand and help lift them up to see that it's not so bad as it seems? Either way, the choice is yours. So I love, I love that expression. I love that article. I wanted to read the whole thing because it just kind of flows from top to bottom. And it represents sort of my personal shift, my change, the reason this is done um, and the, ultimately the thesis of this entire process is that we all go through this, we all go through this modernist process and the world happens to be sharing that, not the world, but at least the American culture. And I think the world in, in, at scale has, um, uh, an average viewpoint here in this modernist place of, um, tackling with its relationship between being secular and being, um, religious, Uh, But also not seeing, like, kind of seeing each other's shadow, and and uh, uh, experiencing some nihilism within it all. There's a lack of purpose. There's a lack of um, uh, lack of imagination, frankly, um, and an assumption that all of the things that scientists have proclaimed are actually true. These are theories. Uh, These are presumptions, Uh, and not seeing that there are often these very human elements that are put into these presumptions the idea that there will be a heat death the idea that the big bang started from nothing and became something um, that there had to have been a nothing like there could just be cycles of something Uh, those are missing pieces uh, and that is the difference between you know sort of a pessimism and an optimism not that there isn't beauty in the discovery of the stars and all of that because that's absolutely it but for it to feel like a narrative that mirrors our own, there has to be a life and death cycle, and the universe doesn't have to play by our rules. You know, we're born into existence, and then we die. But as far as we know, we don't know that we don't go anywhere else. We don't know that we don't come from somewhere else. We don't know the degree to which our energy is transferred or transpersed or whatever words you want to use to, to and from our organic existence. We just don't know. We have no idea. And um it's a lot of acting like we know, a lot of self-seriousness that leads to a lot of depression. Uh that's one major thesis that I've come across is that taking myself too seriously is what has ultimately led me to every sense of wanting to not live anymore. Because if I'm not experiencing the joy of existence, then yeah, what is the point of living? You know, that that enables and opens up the door for all sense and manner of meaninglessness. But at the same time, and I'm going to say this very crudely, that if you truly believe that there is no meaning to existence, then why are you still here? Why are you listening to this podcast? Why are you seeking anything? Why are you just grubbing? (laughs) Or, you know, you're mooching on life at that point. Uh, and, uh, there's still something within you that believes that there is a purpose to exist. There's a meaning to exist, that there's a reason that you're here and you don't necessarily need to have like a, a God driven reason or like a, um, a communicable reason. I'm not saying that there is a, a, a purpose written on a slab of stone somewhere telling you the direction to go because I think people, I think we misinterpret purpose and an instruction manual right like simply existing is purpose enough and i think that's the problem is that we're getting too hung up on having a specific thing to do but i find that if you read the book ikigai there's plenty there's actually a couple of them but the concept of ikigai is a um just sort of a effortless living it's just sort of a day-to-day life simple living and it's uh, a there's a specific book um, by penguin books i think is the publisher uh, I don't have the, the book near me, so I can't reference who the author is. But it's like a blue cover. That's the best I could It's a blue cover, a fairly small book. I think it's the, the only one like that in the Ikigai uh, series that pulls references from uh, centenarians, people who have lived over 100 years, and the simple lives that they live in the blue zones around the world that where where people are you know, finding purpose and action and flow and family and care and all of the things that they're just showing up and doing. And in a way, I feel like what they're doing is bal- balancing their chemicals. And right now, we're in a very much a modern world, especially if you live in a city and you have a cell phone, you have all these technologies and things like where our chemicals are very imbalanced, or they can be easily become imbalanced if we have traumas related to them. In my case, I used a lot of dopamine throughout my life to protect myself from, you know, family turmoil and stuff. And uh, I had a lot of trust issues. And with trust issues and that still manifest today, that I don't have a lot of closeness in my life, in my social life. Like physical closeness around people. I have digital connections. Um, but social media connections are still dopamine hits. They're still left brain activities to do stuff on your phone it's not a right brain expression and it's definitely not a heart expression in a more authentic heart space kind of way Uh, i know that there have been uh, scans done that show that your electromagnetic field from your heart extends out to five feet at times and i think that's part of the synergy that we experience with other people that's part of the co-regulation it's like two hearts talking uh, which sounds super cheesy but in a way that's what's happening. Um, that's what happens with introspection sometimes, not introspection, um, interjection when you're maybe taking on someone else's emotions, trying it on, seeing what it feels like. And, um, there's the co-regulation that's so important with the oxytocin side. And I think that's been a major element that's been missing in my life. You know, I've got, um, dopamine hits everywhere. I've got serotonin hits everywhere with my partner and deep love and connection in that sense but uh, very much working on the oxytocin side. And I think I started to pursue this podcast in service of that. I think I've been wanting to unconsciously create a community where I'm getting feedback for my efforts, for my work, for what I'm putting out into the world. And um, this podcast just didn't produce that. I I did get some, some nice feedback, but not to the degree that I was really hoping for. Um, because it's digital, because it's online, because I'm trying to take the shortcuts, I'm still trying to rely on the dopamine hit. And that's because that's just what I'm used to doing. And I think that's part of my work going forward, is introducing more of the oxytocin aspect into my experience, being around literal human beings more, uh, hugging human beings, building more of a community and network of human beings that I'm going to connect with. And so if I could leave with what that final thesis is, it's that, you know, dopamine and other happy chemicals, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and, you know, we've got endocannabinoids that relax our body and all this other stuff, um, that those are the things that I'm balancing. And I think it's actually been the whole time that dopamine has been something that I over relied in my life. And <laughs> it's probably why it became the the name of the podcast. Uh, I've, I've been over relying on it. And I very much feel like my brain skips along the surface when I'm doing it too much doing it too readily. And, you know, when you've got one thing that's overcompensating, the other start, the other things start to fade. And truly a level of balance is getting those needs met. Now, I don't necessarily fully know that they're connected to the Enneagram instincts, but I think it's an easy way to understand it, that often when we're doing self-preservation, we need to personally do things. We need to achieve, we need to strive, we need to accomplish. Not necessarily in a corporate kind of way, but I mean like we need to get up and feed ourselves and bathe ourselves and do tasks and activities to take care of ourself. That's the self-preservation side. And I think maybe that's part of what this podcast has been too, is me understanding the, the self-preservation side and um, that I've been putting myself into too many situations where I've need to over-rely on my self-preservation side, which is my repressed side. Uh, that's my, my third in my instinctual sequence is self-preservation. And so I'm like, in essence, have been operating from an inelegant place, uh a place that is um is 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 not uh comfortable or natural to me. And uh kind of oscillating between this dopamine and serotonin side, this uh, sexual dominant side, the one-to-one side, and the um self-preservation side, the reliant on dopamine and stimulants and just getting me to the next thing. Uh, and the oxytocin side has been greatly missing. That's the balancing point. And also in the Enneagram instincts, I find that the second instinct is a balancing point. Um, usually a lot of people feel calmer when they access that, um, instinct. And for me, that's social and social connects to the oxytocin stuff. So for me, that's my path going forward. That's my thesis of what this podcast is about. That article brilliantly, I think sums up a shift from having spent years in more of a scarcity place, more of an assumption or working through the ideas that nothing matters, working through the ideas and feelings that, um, why am I here? What am I doing here? Dealing with my own suicidal tendencies, uh, working through my mental health, trying to find meaning and reason, trying to find whatever my sense of purpose is, And I think I've landed on my sense of purpose is already manifesting. We're already a part of the emerging origins of the universe. You know, um, whatever that starting point may have been or continues to be, it's an ever evolving present. It's an ever evolving now. And there is no necessarily instruction manual, which can be disconcerting But also that's a part of your your humanity. That's part of the unique presence of existing that we get to bring to everything is that through the personas that we bring to the world, that we show up as, we then have to integrate the individuation part of it. What is us? What is the part of we, me as an individual that I bring to the table? And that exploration is has been the most fruitful part of my existence and allows me to connect with my, my wife and my friends and bring something that starts to get me more of the oxytocin that starts to get me more of the, the chemical balance starts to bring me more joy to start to see optimism in the way forward for myself, even if things at scale are looking a bit dire because a lot of people are in the same place, but I I I want to take a place of looking ahead, of trying to imagine what hasn't been imagined yet. Um, I want to explore optimistic possibility. I want to explore how I can support and lead and create material that can support the unstuckness that people need to get through, right? So the bridge... And the thesis that I'm bringing to my next project is a quote from Peter Sang, which is not to preach growth, but to remove the obstacles limiting growth. And ultimately that that's the kind of stuff I want to make is searchable content on TikTok or YouTube or on Substack that, you know, when someone is stuck, they can find it and have someone's experience to reference and pull from. I know a lot of people are doing that, but if I'm bringing a, um, a perspective that is a bit more optimistic, less nihilistic, less cynical, then I think people can see that they don't have to just default to that because I ultimately feel like negativity, fear of death, fear of, uh, fear of ostracization, fear of whatever is ultimately driving a lot of people to not really think clearly. And I want to support clear thinking as much as I can. So this has gone on a long time, but, um, I feel like this is the end cap that I really, really wanted in terms of the thesis part of it and, um, how things are going forward. So, uh, thanks for still being here. Uh, even though I told you this was done, <laughs> uh, And, um, yeah, that's it. Like I said, I have a Substack. Let's go see note.substack.com. If you want to keep following me and, um, good luck with everything, all your travels, all your life, all your friendships and connections, go hug someone today and, uh, I'll see you somewhere else. Bye. I realize in retrospect, now that I'm sitting in my kitchen after recording this episode that, um, I, I think I got it backwards in terms of the instinct correlation to those chemicals uh and it makes more sense actually <laughs> when i get it correct which is um, dopamine related to the pleasure center related to the sexual or one-to-one pleasure and uh, intimate connections um, the oxytocin still stays the same social related and then Uh, serotonin related to the body and self-preservation needs and all that stuff so i wanted to course correct on that so that um that possibly makes more sense that's literally something i was thinking of as i was recording the episode so uh, in true fashion for how this entire podcast has been i am not a doctor and (laughs) and i forget these things uh and what they actually correlate to but um I think that makes 100% sense and if you're uh, trying to better understand your instincts I feel like understanding those chemicals and how they are misfiring or or imbalanced um, makes a lot of sense so not only oxytocin is something I uh, can find some balance in but um you know the balance of serotonin as well, and, and caring for my own self-preservation to not have dopamine doing all of the work. So I just wanted to to, to fix that at the end there. So I hope that makes sense. And you don't think I'm a dummy because I still care. <laughs> anyway, uh, take care and uh, good luck. See ya.